Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Richard A. Muller. Richard is Senior Fellow at the Junius Institute for Digital Reformation Research, and he also serves as the P.J. Zondervan Professor of Historical Theology Emeritus at Calvin Theological Seminary. Richard, I can't begin to guess how big your business card is, but it's great to have you here on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're talking today about your new book, uh, just published by Oxford University Press, a book called Grace and Freedom, William Perkins and the Early Modern Reformed Understanding of Free Choice and Divine Grace. Um, before we jump into to discussion about the book, could you tell us something about yourself? You've been working in this field for a long time. You've published some of the most seminal works in terms of early modern historical theology. Um, you edit the Oxford Historical uh, Theology series. You've done a huge amount of work. Um, how how did you come to make this kind of contribution? Yeah, it's it's been a long a long story, and I, I I should I can say back at the beginning, I became interested in Perkins. In fact, I've, I've often thought that Perkins was actually my the my first doctoral dissertation topic. It's the one that I didn't write. Um, I got interested in Perkins largely by reading pieces like um, Basil Hall's Calvin Against the Calvinists. And back then, which was 1972 or 1973, a long time ago, there was not a lot being written on the, on these subjects. And most of what was written was making a, you know, a, a massive divide between Calvin and later Reformed theology. And I read Perkins and I said, well, what he's saying doesn't really comport with what Basil Hall is claiming. And then I read a whole series of other folk. Um, I read Ursinus and Zonke um, and some later writers. And I came to the conclusion that none of them really fit with what Basil Hall was saying. And so that, that yielded, yielded the dissertation. But Back then, there was just very little written on the field, and I think my process through it has been a process of learning more and more about the field and then and gradually writing what I could call prequels. You know, and, and so, so, you, know you, you make the movie, and then instead of a sequel, you write a prequel, which is or you produce, which is something that you should have written first in order to understand what you actually did write first. Um, so that the, the next project was that post-Reformation dogmatics where I, I, I realized that my first book was a negative book in many ways. I tried to say what wasn't there. So that with post-Reformation dogmatics, which started out as a project for a, a single volume monograph, by the way, um, I tried to say what actually was there, what were their principles. And I think my, my, my process has been just a long process of digging out of largely theological biases of older scholarship. And 
I try my best to rid myself of modern theological biases. Now, of course, people say you can't write unbiased history, and I, I don't claim to. But what I claim to, to try to do is set aside what I know are the modern assumptions and categories, and then look at the text and ask, what it, what is it saying? Uh, I think one of my first real breakthroughs on it was when I got rid of the notion of Christocentrism as a, a largely silly bias. Um, and and I've just gradually worked on it down to today and, in, in, and very grateful for the connections I've made um, with other scholars in the field. So that now um, we have a very large field with an awful lot of monographs in it many of which have gone beyond where I started, way beyond it, um, to examine more refined topics that never would have been even even presumed years ago. And I, that, I think that that's where I'm still trying to go. Well, that, that's a characteristically modest way of describing how you've shaped this field, Richard. But the, the book that we're talking about today, Grace and Freedom, William Perkins and the Early Modern Reformed Understanding of Free Choice and Divine Grace does partially engage with a contemporary debate, doesn't it? A debate about free will and inverted commas or free choice, as you prefer to describe it in the book. Before we jump into Perkins himself, could you could you tell us a little bit about this this context, the context of modern debates about free will and inverted commas and divine sovereignty? You know, I mean, I, I think I I know that I got into this field that this particular subfield, largely by way of a, a long, decades-long dialogue with several colleagues. Um, on the one hand, my Dutch colleagues from University of Utrecht, who were arguing a different kind of notion of freedom and contingency. And also my old colleague, Paul Helm, who is very much opposed to what the Utrecht folk were saying. Um, my own sense was that I had difficulties with both sides, so that on the on the on the side of my Utrecht colleagues, I was a little bit worried about the 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 large scale emphasis just on Scotus, and I thought that there was there was more background than that, um, including some recent research by medievalists that shows that Aquinas had actually similar concepts to what Scotus built on. It's sometimes called synchronic contingency or simultaneous contingency sometimes. Um, on the other side, um, Paul Helm, where Paul and I have batted back and forth how to interpret these people, where his take is that they fit into a modern philosophical compatibilist stance. My own sense is, and this, this has to do with the method I, I spoke of before, my own sense is that it's important to start out by putting away the modern categories and asking exactly what does the text mean. Um, my present sense is that the the if, if you if you take a, a a very root meaning of libertarian compatibilist, and you say, well, liber libertarian is incompatibilist, saying that free will is not compatible with determinism. And the compatibilist is the person who says, no, 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 free will is compatible with determinism. Well, then you could construe this as a kind of A and not A situation that is mutually exclusive of all of the categories. And I think my philosophical friends tend to do that. So that 
if you're not a compatibilist, you must be a libertarian. If you're not a libertarian and you, you, you must be a compatibilist. And my contention is that that's simply not true. That once you get into the definitions of what is being meant by libertarianism, compatibilism, there are so many variables in those definitions and so many points that they don't even consider that there are other possibilities out there. So that what I'm looking at, when I have a neat little essay saying neither libertarian nor compatibilist, um, my point isn't that there's something in between these two that's a kind of mediating position. My point is that there are just a whole series of categories that are being dealt with in the older material that don't fit with either of these modern cases. And I think that, that that's my complaint about the modern case. I mean, Reformed Orthodox folk certainly do think in a very generic, generalized sense that free will is compatible with a divine determination. Now, I, I say it that way because I don't think they are determinists in the modern philosophical sense. But they they do think these things are compatible. And just you, different. And and, and th this, this is very much at the heart of your, your book about Perkins, isn't it? Grace and Freedom, um, where, where you identify Perkins as espousing a position that's quite distinct from some of these modern um, arguments. So as we turn to the book itself, can you tell us who Perkins was, why he matters, um, and perhaps give us an idea of some of the earlier work that's been done on him? Hmm. Who Perkins was and why he matters? Well, for starters, Perkins really was, I think, the preeminent Elizabethan English theologian. That preeminence was recognized very rapidly on the continent, where some of his works were published in Latin, and then and all of his works were eventually translated into Dutch, and, and there's a very nice Latin opera that was published in Geneva. So Perkins had an international reputation in his day, and rightly so. Um, he's in the forefront of an international cross-channel reform dialogue about what the reform faith means. In his English slot, I think Perkins is, well, there are two, th two things that Perkins is. One, in terms of his bibliography, Perkins is one of the major writers of the era who is looking at what immediately went before, uh, so that I find him, then this, this goes against the, the old view of, um, of Basil Hall. He's not just a Bazin. In fact, Ursinus and Vermigli, demonstrably, I think I show that in the book, have a much greater influence. So that Perkins is not only influential on the continent, he's being influenced by the continent in, in a whole series of ways. With a, with a very rich bibliographical background. The other thing that makes Perkin who he is and makes him important is he really is, in, in his own generation, not before that or after that, probably the chief apologist for the theology of the Elizabethan Settlement Church of England. So Jewell comes before him and is, is important in his own way, and other thinkers come after. But in the 1590s, Perkins is probably the most important one for that. And I, I must say, I, I, I stand quite in agreement um, with Patterson on the identity of Perkins as a, a, a major apologist of the Church of England. 
I was willing to say in the book that, yes, you can still call him a father of Puritanism in the sense that so many of the Puritans pick up on the theology that, that Perkins writes, including his work on conscience. But that doesn't make Perkins a Puritan. Um, it makes him a reformed predecessor of the reformed side of English Puritanism. So Perkins is also, as you just mentioned, drawing a lot on the resources of an earlier generation of reformed theology. How does someone like Calvin uh, approach this issue of free will and determinism? And how important is that for, for Perkins as he develops his own ideas? I, I don't think Calvin is all that important for Perkins. Um, when I read Calvin on the issue of, of, of free will, or more, or more specifically free choice, I find him a tad hyperbolic, and largely because he's fighting over the issue of whether or not one can freely choose meritorious works, works that are, are of salvific value or soteriological value. And he says no. Calvin does not take up the issue of free choice in general. So I, Calvin, Calvin was, part of his salary was casks of wine, and I think he was, he was awarded red wine and white wine. Calvin doesn't take up the question um, whether on a particular day he is absolutely free to choose either the red or the white. And then it's entirely up to his will. He doesn't say, is there some antecedent that is causing me to take the red and not the white? Or is there no antecedent? Is my will absolutely free? He doesn't, he doesn't raise those questions. Now, others like Vermigli do. And Vermigli specifically says there's no complaint about free choice in civil matters or household matters. And Perkins does the same thing. Perkins even says in ecclesiastical matters, such as whether or not you go to church, there, there's, there's, there's free choice there. And, and let me note that the language that is used presently, particularly libertarian compatibilist, almost always says free will. And it doesn't really deal with liberum arbitrium, free decision, free judgment, free choice. It doesn't really deal with the issue of whether the free will engages in some sort of deliberative process, whereas free choice implies that. Vermigli shows that very clearly. Calvin doesn't. And what about someone like Beza then, Richard? Beza seems to pass on a view of the decrees that Perkins takes up. But you argue in the book that in terms of free choice, um, the positions are quite different. I, I don't see. I don't know that Beza really develops a free choice topic as clearly as people like Vermigli or Sinus. I don't know that he would be all that different because he, like Calvin, is very much focused on the issue of gra grace, predestination, and and the will that brings about salvation. He's, he doesn't raise the other issues, as far as I know. So we, we move then to Perkins himself, and you, you've written this, you know, very complex and detailed, um, very stimulating account of, of Perkins' idea of free choice and divine grace. How, how would you begin to summarise some of the, the arguments there? I think per Perkins is very clear that there is both a freedom of the will and free choice. 
And freedom of the will, which would be the, the libertas voluntatis, the voluntas being will, the will is unconstrained. Um, almost everyone agrees on that. I think Calvin and Beza would say the same thing, that, that, the, that there is nothing that can absolutely coerce the will. Given that the will is voluntary, I mean, the, the, it, it does what it, 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 it's spontaneous in the sense of acting of its own accord, which is what sponte means. So that there's that will. And then there's the question of what is choice? What is arbitrium? The, 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 the decision, the judgment that's made. And there Perkins does, like most of his, his colleagues in his time, have a sense of the interrelated actions or action of intellect and will. The problem that they all confront is that although they view will as rational, rational faculty, the will doesn't know by itself. The will doesn't see. When you see something, um, what, what you, what you, well, well they all, all assume that there's nothing in the mind that wasn't first outside of the mind. Um, very Aristotelian that way. So what, to know something, your, your intellect has to gather perceptions. The will isn't gathering perceptions. The intellect is doing that. The will, they all say, is blind. So what does the will need to make, to make, to, to act, have an act of will? Well, the will, the will has affections and desires, and the will desires an object. The intellect identifies the object, and it identifies whether the object is good or bad. That's the job of the intellect. Now, then the job of the will is to choose the object. Now, will traditionally is understood always to gravitate toward the good. That's the way it's constituted by God. The problem with the sinful will is that it doesn't know what's really good in an, or, or pay attention to what's really good in the ultimate sense. It asks the question of what is good for me now? So that you know, in, in, in this kind of understanding, if you would ask a person who just robbed a bank, why did you decide to do something that was bad? And the real answer the person is going to give they may admit that this was criminal, but the reason they did it is because they thought it was good for them at the moment. They didn't say this is bad for me at the moment. It's good. It's a warped sense of, of what is good. So the will gravitates toward what it, what is good at the moment. But then the question comes, does the will have to accept the object offered by the intellect? And there are some intellectualist philosophers who say, yes, the will has to. Now, the typical language used by these folk is that they will say the will must follow the last judgment of the intellect. But they don't mean that the will is caused by the intellect. All they're saying is that without the object, the will can't will. So the will must follow because it has to be given an object. Perkins' generation. And I see this in Ursinus. Um, it's there in Piraeus. Um, it's there in Francis Junius, all contemporaries of Perkins. They consistently say that the will in its choosing has the ability to elect, reject, or suspend. So the, the intellect provides an object and the will rejects it. 
So that the, the will actually is, as they say, the mistress of its own act. So how, how would this then apply to the experience of salvation in Perkins' view? Yeah, the, the, this, this is where it gets very interesting. If, if you were a, a determinist, you might say that what God is doing is absolutely determining the choice that the will is going to make. So the, the, the will, you, you, there's a particular Sunday and you, 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 your will is determined by God to have you go to church. Your will is determined by God to listen carefully to the sermon, etc., 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 and then grace gets you through the sermon. I don't think they're saying it that way. I think what they're saying is that efficacious grace works on the will. You might almost say medicinally, without abridging the functioning of the will, so that when God's grace works on the will. Instead of choosing an object sinfully, you choose it by God's grace in a, in a, in a salvific way. So, yes, there is predestination. There's a predestination of some individuals to receive efficacious grace. Um, but there, but there isn't a kind of divine willing that there be no, that there be no choosing of object, that there be no ability to reject an object. It's however the will is choosing, the will is being engraced. So that there, there's this, this unabridged willing. I mean, if, if, if you had grace forcing the will, then you would, you wouldn't have free will anymore. In fact, as they say, if the will is coerced, there's no will at all. So that the, the, the issue is how does grace work in relationship to the will? An Arminian would say, that the will can work against the grace. Perkins will say, no, the will can't work against efficacious grace. So there's your, there's your predestining. Um, but you know, for, for example, get, given that the nature, the, the, this, this, you have to back off a little because the issue is the nature. When human nature is unfallen, human beings, per Augustine, can do, do the good or do the evil. The will is fallen, they can only do the evil, but the, it's the nature that's fallen. So the will is operating freely within the confines of a nature, which is starts out to be unfallen, ends up being fallen, then regenerate and in glory. It's the, it's the, it's the confines and limitation of the nature that is causing the problem of the willing, not the inability of the will to choose, not the inability of the will to reject or accept objects. So that a sinful person can choose a good object sinfully, whereas a regenerate person can choose the good object in a way that is salvific. It's very striking, isn't it, that, that Perkins takes that very familiar architecture of the four states of man and yet builds such a nuanced and detailed and careful account of uh, free choice on top of that. How, did, how was his position developed in the generation that followed him? Did they preserve the nuance, the, 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 the care of his position, or did it begin to disperse? There's, there's a slight shift. The, the basic structure remains the same, so that they use the same faculty psychology. The, the theological structure of the four states of humanity remains the same. 
as does the sense of the nature providing the limitation. What you do have in some is a, a more intellectualist stance where the will is going to be choosing the object that the intellect provides, at least, at least in most cases in terms of the goal of the object. Now, this is where the, the eclecticism enters and whereas the, 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 what you could call a more Franciscan or more voluntarist way is the ability of the will to refuse the object. If you go a more Thomist way, if the object is the good, the will is not going to be able to refuse it because the will wills the good. But the will still has a choice of means so that the object offered by the intellect, insofar as is good, will be chosen, but the means to get that object can vary according to how the will wills its path. At least I think that's that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. The Turretin is more intellectualistic, and there seems to be an intellectualist shift that goes on sometime during the 17th century. That that's something that needs to be researched more. And I've noted a couple of cases in the book. Do you see that as a shift towards Thomism? Well, I'd say it's the shift in the balance of their eclecticism. <laughs> now, because you know, I, I used to have this 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 debate with an old colleague about whether Arminius is a Molinist, and my comment always was, well, you shouldn't call him a Molinist you know, per se, because he's adopting one Molinistic idea, middle knowledge, and then using it in, a, in an argument about salvation that Molina wouldn't like, because Arminius still has faith as the basis of salvation. So, no, they're, they're never thoroughly Thomistic, although the Thomist line is very important all along in that virtually every reformed writer I've seen who discusses it assumes the analogia entis, which is something, again, I, I, dis, I discovered gradually um, so that um, I made it clearer in a second printing of the first version of my four volumes. Uh, but if I get a third edition or another edition, it'll be even more clear. And hopefully a fifth volume too. Oh yes, well that that's that's the, the the next edition is contingent on the fifth volume. Contingency. I'm very suspicious of that term now. Right. Yes. It's, it's a, a contingent thing is something that could be otherwise, but only if According, you freely choose it. Yeah. Well, no, it could be otherwise whether you whether you freely choose it or not. It's <laughs> it's, only, it's only necessary once it exists, and well, then it's a necessity of the present. <laughs> Well, Richard, you, you've written this wonderful book, Grace and Freedom, William Perkins and the Early Modern Reformed Understanding of Free Choice and Divine Grace, just published by Oxford University Press. What will what do you hope this book will do in contributing to the contemporary debate about some of these issues? Well, I, I guess my, my main hope is that it, it simply clarifies what the older tradition was saying. And and it adds to the case that there really is a divide that occurs somewhere after the the, the last quarter of the 17th century. That to, to, to argue with the way Perkins argues, or the way Turretin argues it, you need to have a, a lot of clearly understood scholastic distinctions, 
and you have to interpret them in certain ways and probably be largely Aristotelian peripatetic in your philosophy. Um, I mean, the fact that you have the distinctions and the method doesn't necessarily determine what you're going to do with it. So there are people who use the same distinctions and come out with a different with a different theory. But the reformed use them in a particular way. Um, and that this whole set, you, when you, once, once you get past um, 1700, you don't find people typically talking about a distinction between simultaneity of potency and a potency of simultaneity. They don't even know what it means anymore. Uh, you don't have people talking about the will in its primary and secondary actuality. Uh, they don't know what that means anymore. And they don't understand causes in terms of an Aristotelian fourfold causality anymore. So that once that goes, this older pattern is largely misunderstood. And, and I, I know this causes debate among some of my readers and hearers and colleagues, but I think that philosophical shift underlines the datum that someone like Jonathan Edwards does fit in with modern compatibilism and is saying something very different from what the, the older Reformed theology is saying. Um, now, I don't know what kind of impact this would have on modern discussion because there is that ugly ditch identified by Lessing. And faculty psychology is not accepted anymore, um, at least not in, in a lot of circles. You see this in the fact that the modern debate is always talking about free will, seldom about free choice. And when it does mention free choice, it's, it thinks it's the same as free will. So that there's, there's no distinction between voluntas and arbitrium anymore. Well, Undoubtedly, your book will make a, a, a huge impact on those who are concerned to think about some of these issues, Richard. Thank you very much for writing it. But before we wind up today, could you tell us what your next project might be? My next project, um, which may or may not be, um, <laughs> it, it remains in the realm of the possible, um, will be something largely to do with natural theology. Um, Reform philosophy and natural theology. Um, I, I don't want to write a whole natural theology. I mean, it, you, you, you know, I, I don't even want to write out a natural theology doctrine of God. But there are issues in the whole history of reform natural theology that it, it's a very different beast than what people like Karl Barth have complained about. Or, or let's just say they misinterpreted very, very clearly. Um, and they, they, there's, there's a sense among the older reformed that natural knowledge, particularly if it is used by Christians, can come up with a lot of good ideas about God. Ideas that are there built into the natural order that pagans should be able to recognize, but, but don't fully grasp because of sin. And they do develop fairly large scale natural theologies, but I would say within the realm of, of the older orthodoxy, never as a kind of necessary prolegomenon without which you can't have supernatural theology. And it does become that way later on, 18th century. So that, that's what I, I'd probably be working on. Well, that sounds wonderful. Look forward to seeing that in due course, maybe having the chance to talk to you about it. Um, in the meantime, Richard, thank you so much for writing this book, Grace and Freedom, William Perkins and the Early Modern Reformed Understanding of Free Choice and Divine Grace. And thanks for coming on to the show and sharing your time to talk about it. Well, thanks very much for, for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure.
It's been great. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.